I had to get my, my notes in the right order. My very first sermon that I preached was in a homiletics course uh, in graduate school. And on the way up to preach, I dropped my notes. And I hadn't numbered them. And so I preached the message out of order, just based on what was in front of me. And it made no sense whatsoever. It was really good material. It just didn't make any sense because I started with the last page. So I just I promise I won't do that this morning. Well, it's great to have you here, and uh, we are going to start a new series uh, called New Life in Christ. And you know they, they say that um, you forget about ninety percent of what you hear unless you write it down, and that's why we have given these uh, booklets out. We really do encourage you to take some notes. We've given you a sticker. Uh, with the section of scripture that we're going to read this morning, and we're going to study that passage, and then we're going to jump to the next section, and we're going to move right through Romans 6, 7, and 8, probably one of the most formidable, most significant sections of scripture in the New Testament that talk about our relationship with Christ, our new relationship with Christ, and how to live it. I really mean that. I've been studying Romans since I was in college and uh, set out actually to memorize it and uh, gave up in chapter 6. It was just, um, took up about three years. And uh, it, is, it is such a significant section of Scripture that I want us to look at this Romans 6 to 8 argument. And so I encourage you to have one of these. They're in the back. And then put your sticker in there and then take some notes, uh, however you like to do it. I still even have my the Art of Following Jesus one. Remember that one? Well, thank you to Carl back there. who we ju You just met Carl. Carl came out to the river and worked with our staff and helped us create and develop the whole plan of discipleship that's online that we began last year that we're going to continue to be followers of Christ. And we did sermons. We had all sorts of stuff online that we... Uh, uh, made available to you all as you meet and gather together in small groups and, and individual as, with, uh, as well as with individuals. And um, so we, we are so excited that we're now going to continue in the, in the mindset of that we want to be followers of Christ in new life. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to introduce that series. And remember what I said, 90% of what you forget. Did, who, who preached last week? Does anybody remember? James. Okay. I did, Taylor, I heard that. And do you remember what he preached on? Romans, an overview of Romans. How many movements were there? Does anybody remember how many movements? Six. There you go. There's a note taker right there. Ray, six. Absolutely. And writing stuff down that you hear and then reflecting on it takes it a, another level deeper. Just, just believe me on that. So let's, let's do that this morning, and, I'll, and I'm going to give you a couple things to write down. Uh, let me begin. The Christian life is not easy. No question. A popular notion is that it's simply about making a few behavioral changes, and we're, gonna, we're good to go. But the problem is there's something deeper that's always driving us against the behavior that we truly desire. There's something in us. And one of the most fast, fascinating and significant monologues in all the New Testament is found in our section, Romans chapter 
7, which is right in the middle of this section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. And Paul says in Romans 7, which is really truly every single one of us, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand, for I'm practicing what I wouldn't, I would, I would, what I would, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. So now no longer I am the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me, and that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Paul describes the common, most common problem that we have in the Christian life. It is really hard to live it out. So what has to be understood in order to step out in true new life with Christ, resurrection life. We've talked about the resurrection and Easter. Paul lays out this argument in Romans that it is the gospel of God that will change your life. Paul, Paul put all of his emphasis on that. In fact, in the very first chapter of Romans, Paul commits sedition. He steps out against the Roman imperialism of the day and claims that he is no longer a servant to Rome, but a servant to a new gospel. And this gospel is worth living for. It's going to change your life. And Paul commits sedition and says, Christians, do you understand that you do not have to be a slave to imperialistic thinking that's being pressed upon you by forces outside of you and within you because you're a new person in Christ. How do we live that out? That is the key. So how do we do that? And how do we overcome this dilemma, this difficulty of doing what we don't want to do? I hate that, don't you? I mean, I get trapped into this way of thinking and it just takes me down a rabbit hole. And whether it's an action, or whether it's a thought, or whether it's a desire. Someone asked me the other day, I'm going to take my sabbatical here in a couple months. <clears throat> and, like, what do you want to do? I don't know. I don't think I want to do anything. Kind of like this defeatist mentality is set in. Like, I should be thinking, this is going to be so good. This, you know, it's been eight years, and I, this would be a good time for me to reflect and dive in and do some really good work and, and, and change things up. And we, every time you change your, your place and you change uh, what you're thinking about, you're going to change your perspective. Things change when you reset in a new place. And so, you know, I'm trying to think about that, and my response was, I don't know. It's like, ah, I don't know why I'm even bothered doing this. Nothing's really going to change. I'm just going to come back to the same person. You know, that might, how, why do we just slip back into those kinds of ways of thinking? In 1886, before we get into our passage, I'm going to take you way back. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a short story, 80 pages long, probably one of the most profound depictions of human nature ever published other than the Bible. Inside every human being, Robert Louis Stevenson, who grew up in a Presbyterian home, heard the gospel, knew the power of the gospel, wrote this book, 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Inside every human being is a potential for good and a potential for evil. Each person and every person Dr. Jeff Jekyll discovered was a dual nature. Outwardly good at times, inwardly evil at the same time. So he decides to invent a potion. You know the story. It's a very, very short little story that you could read in one sitting. And he invents this potion to try to separate the separate out the two notions or the natures in him so that he can be really good as Dr. Jekyll and in the night, undetected, act out the evil that's inside of him that no one will know about. Dr. Hyde, by the way, by the way means what? To hide something hideous. And Stevenson's whole point in writing this this incredible story, which I, have, I don't have enough time. I, wanna, I have quotes, and I have all sorts of stuff, and notes, and as Carrie Newhoff says, it's in the show notes. Um, just look at the show notes. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure out how to, how to get those to you, but they really are worth looking at because within this amazing book, what he writes out is that he tries to separate the two natures, and the problem is Mr. Hyde, as you know, becomes more dominant. And even the, the better Miss Dr. Jekyll became, the more benevolent he became to overcome the evil. I'm just going to be really, really good. I'm going to work really hard at being really, really good. And if I do that, then maybe it'll overcome the really, really bad. And yet the really, really bad became even more powerful until he actually became a slave to that nature. That's exactly what our passage of Scripture says this morning. That's our problem, but there's a solution. Um, Oh, I have to read you one quote. This is what he says. Because the the way he writes it is so good. It just doesn't come out in, in any kind of a play or a movie. I knew myself at the first breath of this new life, the new life of trying to be really good and separate from that old bad self that I am, to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked. It became worse. Sold a slave to my original evil. And the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. I stretched out my hands, exulting in the freshness of these sensations. And in the, fat, in the act, I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. Game over. And you know the, rest, the way the story ends. It doesn't have to be that way, by the way. And that isn't true of what God says that has happened to us in the new life. Here it is, Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to read from my new little booklet. And here's the sticker that you have. So what should we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? It's a continued argument from Romans 5 where Paul says where where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. In other words, we're always covered by grace. God understands that we have a struggle within us. And so he's given us his grace to compensate for our failures and our inadequacies. It's a wonderful story of a gospel. That's a gospel of grace, not a gospel of shame. And if anything, we should be thinking 
my goodness, this is remarkable that God loves me that much that he's willing to compensate for all the bad in me. And yet the argument goes, what should we do? Should we continue on in the pattern of evil so that we might just get more grace? It's an interesting question. More grace would be good, but Paul says may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or don't you know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that we, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. The goal is to walk in the new life. There it is. Verse 4, verse 5. But we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, overcoming sin and death, so that we might overcome sin and death. And walk in a resurrected life because Jesus gave that to us in his resurrection, and now we live our lives through his resurrection. And something changes within us. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be done away with it, so that we are no longer slaves to sin. For the one who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. If you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God, Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you might pay its lusts. And don't go on presenting the parts of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your body's parts as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. So I learned the big idea. Here's the big idea you can write down in your book. The Christian life is not behavioral modification. As hard as you try, the Christian life is not about just change your behavior. Just, ch just change things up. Just do what I tell you to do. If I could sit here and tell you everything to do, the movies to watch, where you should go, where you shouldn't go, who you should marry, all that other stuff, all that stuff, all the decisions of life, how you should treat other people, now, I have some ideas, some thoughts about that that come from Scripture. They're not wrong. But if all it comes down to is just simply you doing what I tell you to do, it won't work. The Christian life is not behavioral modification, but experiencing, but experiencing new life-giving identity in Christ. You've got to experience the new life, the new life identity it's a new life-giving identity in Christ. Something has changed in you so you can change. Something has changed in you so you can change. You can be a different person because of what this passage says about you and what has happened. 
In other words, what you know, because Paul says, do you not know? Don't you know this? You should know this. This is worth knowing. If you knew this, it would change your life. So what you know can change your life. And I want to talk about what this passage says is the problem and the solution. And here it is. I'll just give it to you, and then you can take some more notes or whatever you want to do. What's the problem in this passage? What's the problem? What do you think? If you look at this passage, and you're going, okay, seems to be a contrast, the old and the new, what's the problem? Sin. Sin is the problem, right? That's the problem. There's something called sin that lives within us that's the problem that's causing all of our problems. And what's the solution? Paul says there's three things about the solution. And here they are. You've been set free. Because who you were died so that who you are can live. That's baptism. Paul uses baptism to describe that who you were died so that who you are can live. But something has to die for something to live. Then Paul goes on to say, number two, you've been given a new identity. You have a new identity, which is really a new relationship to sin. Your relationship to sin has changed. That's chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. And then finally, he ends this section by number 3, you now have a new lifestyle. You can present your bodies no longer as instruments to immorality, the things you don't want to do, but now you can present your body, you can use your body, your life, for instruments of righteousness. You can do good. So how does he make that argument? How does he do that? There it is. That's the whole message right there. So let's look just briefly at a couple of those ideas. The first one being the problem. So the problem is most certainly what, and, and I love James. I loved your message last week and the movements. And the one that struck me when I was listening to it was that section in Romans chapter 3 where it says, for all have sinned, for every single one of us, there's none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. All have disobeyed God. All have walked away. And going all the way back to Romans chapter 1, the, the glory of God is revealed in the heavens, and yet we, what do we do? What has mankind done? Humankind has denied the evidence of God and gone their own way. That's sin. That's what Paul describes when he says, what should we do? Should we continue in this pattern of sin, which is a pattern of living the life you want to live? Well, what's wrong with the pattern of life that I want to live? Maybe it suits you. Maybe it's a good life. Maybe you've really worked things out. Great. Maybe so. But at some point, you will come to realize that something else is at work in you that's controlling you. It's no longer you controlling it. It's controlling you. This is, I don't know whether this is true, and I really like Bob Hope. Bob Hope was a great comedian, and he entertained the, the, the troops for many, many years and um, just have fond memories of the Bob Hope era. And um, 
And yet someone told me this story, and I, it must have been made up because I've never been able to verify it, but I'm going to share it with you because I think it doesn't have to be necessarily Bob Hope, but Bob Hope is a really good person. And he cared for other people, and he used his humor and clean humor, which was so good, and, and uh, in, in, encouraged people and, and brought hope and, and uh, made them laugh, which is so good. And yet someone asked him why you aren't a Christian. You're such a good person. Why aren't you a Christian? He said, until you show me a Christian that does, has done more for mankind than I have, then I'll, I won't be a Christian. You know what the seed of that is? It's pride. It's arrogance. I know better. And if you know better, and if you think you're doing great, great. Fine. You've got a good plan. Work it out. And yet what you will discover is that at some point in your life, as Romans 7 or 6.12 says, we are not to let what? Sin reign in us. That is the inordinate desires of the flesh. That's what sin is. It's this inordinate desire. It's this super mega desire. It's not just a desire. It's a good thing that's become a complete ultimate thing. A good thing becoming an ultimate thing is an idol. And when you have an idol in your life, that ultimate thing wants full control of your life and it wants all your attention. That's what sin is. And Paul wants to attack that issue through the gospel and what happened in us as we died with Christ through baptism. But before we get there, we have to understand it is. It's like anything in life. The go a good thing becomes an ultimate thing that becomes an idol that becomes now an inordinate desire, a lust. It's a good thing. It's a vacation. But if all you live for is vacation, and that's your whole mindset, it will continue to control you. It could be an investment or your investment portfolio, or a workout, just a workout session that becomes so obsessive, it controls you. A relationship, your kids, success, sex, pride, outdoing others. Set within its right context, it's a good thing. When it becomes an inordinate desire, it becomes Mr. Hyde. Well, it's really not that bad. Everyone does it. Okay. Or you might rationalize it, minimize it, rename it underestimated. I can manage this. I have control over. Tomorrow, next time, I'll try harder. How's it working? So what has to change? Well, Paul says three things. First of all, you've been set free. You've been set free from the control and the power of sin through baptism. And Paul uses this idea of baptism. It's really, really important. See, Paul uses baptism as the event to describe the transformation that has happened as you have literally died. And Galatians 2.20, I've died with Christ, right? I've been crucified with Christ. Well, what died in you? Who died? Did you die? You didn't physically die. You spiritually died. Something happened in you. I, this is what I studied when I was in my Master's of Theology program. My thesis was on the Romans 6, dying and rising with Christ, at social ethic that Paul develops here for the New Testament church. And what I discovered is that this dying and rising rite of passage is part of every civilization that's ever existed. They all have this rite of passage. It's a rite of passage from um, uh, uh, adolescence into adult life, responsible adult living. 
And often it's with young males. And they take them out and they take them through an initiation and they come back and they become a different person. They don't recognize their, their mother anymore. They've separated from that dependence and from that family and they've now become a useful member of a community. It's a dying and, uh, it's a dying and rising practice. And this was going on in the Greco-Roman mystery religions as well. It was an initiation. You would be initiated into a cult through a process, and you would change. The difference between all of those and what Paul is describing here is this baptism actually accomplished something. You see, he says, we've, we've, we've died, we were buried, and we rose again with Christ. Well, what happened when Christ died and was buried and rose again? He came back to life, but he was different. Some didn't even recognize him. At the tomb, they didn't recognize him. He, he had now a resurrected, immortal body. Something changed about him. And that's true of us. Something fundamentally changes when you convert to Christ and when you are baptized. See, what Paul's saying is that baptism is the representation of this event. That's what he's saying. Some tie it to the actual act of baptism. Others tie it and say, well, it's symbolic. It's a metaphor. I think it's both. Because I think it's efficacious in the sense that when you become a Christian and you put your faith in Christ... We encourage you to get baptized. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. Get baptized. Why? Because it's an outward sign of an inward change. So you're now publicly testifying, I'm a Christian, and you go through this rite of baptism. It's the rite of the Christian going through a process of dying and rising, but you've already come to Christ. Well, I don't need to be baptized. Well, in the baptism, you are reenacting, as N.T. Wright says, the actual event of dying and rising like Christ. You're reenacting that to make it real for yourself. Something happens within you that God kind of gives you an awareness and a, and a power that you didn't have before. I, I think there's some truth to that. And so this baptism is really important. To baptize literally means to dip, to immerse. It, it's a dyeing term. So they would take cloth and they would put it in this solution, this dye, and it would come out. And what, what happened? It would look different. <clears throat> be different, right? Be a different material. So that's the idea of this baptism that when you go in, at conversion you die, and now you're raised again in Christ to new life. You're reenacting the event of Christ dying and rising with you. You made real for yourself the once-for-all Calvary event. It's now almost been appropriated to you in this very significant and very important event in your life. It's worth doing. Now, what happens? Well, we rise now to newness of life. See that in the passage? Resurrection life happens as a result of this death and this burial that actually has happened. And, and the word that's often used in the New Testament for resurrection life for the believer is a word called polingensia. We find it in Titus 3, 5, and 6. It's the word regeneration. Polingensia literally means to be reborn. It's a stoic 
philosophical term that says basically the world will get so bad that it will need to be changed. And so it will die, it will burn, be burned up by fire, and then it will be reborn. The earth will be reborn, and all of its impurities will be gone. And Paul is using this concept, this idea, polingensia, in Titus 3.5, says that we've been washed, we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit when you come to Christ. And in this baptism, you are recognizing that has actually happened to you. You've regenerated. You've come to life, and now you live in this newness of life. So what's it look like? Old movie, 1995. Sidney Pollack directed a movie called Sabrina. Anybody seen Sabrina? It's a story of the... Um, um, Oh, gosh, what family? The Larrabee family. Linus and David are, are brothers. And David's the playboy, and Linus is the workaholic. The chauffeur that works for the family has a daughter, Sabrina. And she's, very unno she's unnoticed, and yet when she comes back from Paris, she all of a sudden is this beautiful woman, and David recognizes her and falls in love with her. And they're, they're headed into a relationship, and yet Linus who's the workaholic, who's running the family business, wants David to marry somebody else to form this merger between two families to strengthen the business. And so he hatches a plan to cause Sabrina to fall in love with him, though he's not in love with her. And in the process, he actually falls in love with her. That's the story. And what's so interesting is you see the transformation that happens from all of his schemes, his selfishness, his workaholic tendencies. They're all crucified by this love, and he slowly becomes a different person. <coughs> How's that actually happen? Keep reading. Romans chapter 6. One of the most significant, thing, I think, verses in all the New Testament. Here it is. So how do we walk in this newness of life? We experience it. We go through it. Something's radically changed. Paul now dissects it at a, at a deeper level and says, you have a new spiritual identity. Knowing this, again, here's what you need to know. That our old self was crucified in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we are no longer slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. See, you died in the baptismal experience and rose to new life as a follower of Christ. And here's what technically happened to you. Your old self was crucified. You don't have two natures within you that war. You have a, you have a nature. It goes all the way back to Romans 5. The, the nature comes from Adam. We repeat the past every day. And Adam was scared that God was not going to provide for him. So he was going to go out and do his own thing. And that's what we do. We're scared that God will not provide what we really want or need. And so we act a lot like Adam. And in doing so, <clears throat> we demonstrate our distrust. And that is our core nature. That's what we were born with. And yet what Paul is saying is that dies. It's dead. That nature has died within you, and you have a new nature. And that new nature is now aligned with God. In the polingensia, the rebirth, John 3 says you got to be born again. Jesus said it. You, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. 
I don't understand this. It, you're born of the Spirit. That has happened within you. And so you go through this spiritual renewal, through this resurrection, which is a death to the old and life to the new. A new nature within you gets reborn. And yet you say, well, why do I still struggle with sin? Why do I still have the nature within me or the sense within me that is constantly driving me to go a different direction than what I know I should be going? <clears throat> because we have a body of sin. Do you see that in that passage? You have an old self and you also have a body of sin. Those are the two things that are part of you. The old self dies, you have a new self. You have a new nature. You're now, now your nature's been renewed, so you're made right with Christ. You're aligned with God, and when he sees you, he sees Christ. Because your nature's changed. Whole new nature. My whole direction in my life is pointed towards God. And yet the body of sin, which is the elements within us that are still desirous of evil, live on. And yet, they have been, what Paul says here in Romans 6, rendered inoperative. They still exist. So I've got this old TR6. And then let me give you one other illustration, and I'm almost done. Um, so I have this old TR6. And so during COVID, I decided I'm going to change out the seats and put new carpeting in. And so I fixed up the inside. The motor came first. You always fix up the motor first. Everybody does it the other way. They fix up the inside of their car, and they've got a really lousy motor. I got the motor running just where I wanted it. But yet, seats were all broken, torn down, and, and the dash and everything. And so I had it all repaired. And in the process, the guy who did the dash and all the teak and the leather and all that, he didn't get the radio right. I had a radio in there, a stereo. <clears throat> you don't call them radios anymore, do you? I don't know. But anyway, so it wouldn't work. And I've gone since that day to yesterday without a radio. I just haven't bothered to fix it. I don't know. I'll get to it one of these days. COVID was a weird experience and just felt like, I don't know, I don't think I really want to tackle that. And I tried a couple times, couldn't do it. Finally took it to Bob. Bob's my buddy down on Hawthorne and 190th Street. It's been there forever. And uh, drove right in, comes over, looks at it, pulls all the wires out, and we test it. It works. I pull it out. He takes it to his, his uh, testing board, and it worked. Put it back in. Couldn't figure out why it doesn't work. And he says, you got a problem here. Your radio works, but when you, and it's got 10 amps going to it. And you need 10 amps to run a radio. But every time you turn the radio on, it goes down to 6 amps. It's never going to work. So you, we've got to rewire it so that you get your amp, amps back up so that it, it works. It was a rewiring issue. But while it was rewired improperly, the stereo was still there and the stereo still worked and it still turned on and yet it was rendered inoperative. And that's what Paul says about our old proclivity to sin. It's not an old nature. Nature's dead. Your nature is new. You have a new nature, a new outlook in life, but yet... Sin still creeps in and wants to take control and says, hey, come back. This, you liked this. this is, you're going to miss out. And it says all sorts of things to you. 
And here's the truth of all truths. You don't have to listen to that voice anymore because it's against your nature. It's inconsistent with who you are. Can it still shout at you? Absolutely. Does it have any power over you? No. It's not getting enough amps unless you give it the amperage. And you can do it. So what Paul's saying, you no longer have to be a slave to sin. Let me give you another illustration. It's a very, very old illustration. I've used it many times. It's about an old uh, sailing vessel with a very evil captain. And this captain essentially would just kind of order his sailors around. So everybody just felt like they were being uh, very much manhandled. And uh, they felt like committing mutiny, right? Because it was just an evil captain aboard the ship that just drove them and drove them and made them do all these things. And they were just literally driven to the end. And so find, the owner of the ship found out, and when it uh, uh, ended up in a port, so it, it docked, moored, and uh, the new owner put a new captain on board. The problem is the old captain stayed on board. The new captain was benevolent, reasonable, caring. And they worked as a team. And yet on deck the sh on the ship was who? The old captain who kept yelling and screaming and telling them to get back to work, wash the deck. And many of the sailors listened to the old captain because it, out of habit, that's what they've always done. Others did it because they didn't realize that he didn't have any authority anymore on the ship, that there was a new captain aboard. Does that make sense? That's exactly what we do. That's our problem. We're listening to an old master that we've died to. The master didn't die. The slave died. The sailors went through a transformation, and now they have a new master. So what do we do? Well, Romans ends this section with this, and here's the final thought. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Verse 12. To reign, basileo, comes from that idea of Lord, kingdom, a basileo is a kingdom. So who's Lord of your life? Don't let it reign. Don't let it be Lord of your life. That's what he's saying there. And the, the lust there, the epithuma, is this inordinate desire for something that God gives us desires. God gives us great pleasures. God gives us all things to enjoy. All the things I've mentioned before are things that God wants you to truly enjoy and have a great time and enjoy the life that he's given you. But when they, when they become inordinate in their perspective in your life, they become a lust and a power and a control. And Paul says, don't let those be Lord over you. So how do we do that? Present. Don't let sin reign. Don't go on presenting the members of your bodies as instruments of righteousness. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. For you are not under the law, but under grace. So it's an idea of presenting. To, to present literally is a military term. It's to use all of your resources to fight the battle. Your mind, your will, your heart, your desires, your awareness. 
everything, everything about you. I was having this conversation with a friend of mine, and uh, he's very, very wealthy. I said, what are you going to do with all your money? And I said, you have more money than you need. I said, have you, th what, have you thought about maybe using your money to do something really good for other people? Because you have, a, you have a passion. You're a very sensitive person. You're a very caring person. He's not a, he doesn't know Christ, but he's a really, really good person. So what are you going to do with all this? What if you set up a foundation and you began to transfer some of your wealth so that you could begin to do something really good for other people, and guess what happens? You leave a legacy that lives on beyond you. You don't leave it all behind. You actually invest it ahead of time so that it lives on beyond you and it might just continue to grow and do some really good. See, you can, you can take all the skills and all the things you have for yourself and live for yourself. You can do that if you want. It's your life. It's your choice. Or you can present it to a greater good, the righteousness of God. You can do that. But it takes the ability to see one versus the other. The good in it. And begin to make the choices that you need to make to begin to change that. And turn any one of your resources, any one of your strengths, rather than a weakness, becomes even stronger. Thomas Aquinas once said that it takes a habit to change a habit. So I don't want to do that anymore. Well, that's great. But what are you going to do differently? Paul's saying you can. Because it, sin no longer has the power or control of your life. Do you believe that? This morning, do you really believe that? As we go to the table and, and uh, Rebecca, come on up. We're going to do some more worship here and then we're going to go to the table and we're going to close. I, I want you to think about how is this going to change your life? Really, seriously. How is this truth that now you have within you, you know it's true. The Bible says it's true. But are you going to live it? And, and, and don't think, well, I'm just going to be a better person. It's living into your true identity. And that's where the power comes. I know who I am. I know why I don't have to respond that way. I know where I should be investing my time and my effort and my resources. And I'm going to begin to make those changes. And every time you make a change, that habit just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And it wins out every time. And Jekyll wins. Let's pray. So, Father, this morning we, we thank you that Romans 6 sets us free. It truly does. I, I feel so liberated. I feel encouraged. In my own failures, there's grace, and I'm going to fail, and I'm going to keep failing, and yet that's not the point. The point, Father, from what you're telling us is that we can now live out of a new identity. And I want, I, I want to lean into that truth in all aspects of my life. So, Father, I just pray for everyone sitting here today that this would be the most liberating, encouraging message 
They wouldn't feel a sense of shame or guilt or disappointment or discouragement or if God only knew who I was or what I've done or the kind of person that I am deep in my heart. But we would hand that over and say, ah, that's dead, that's gone, it's died. And the grace of God has covered that and given us new life. May we live it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand, if you're able, as we close off in our time of worship. Oh, come. 
like a slime ball, like it's just sort of plagued with regret or a sense that there's just like a, 
hundred pound weight you carry around everywhere you go and it's exhausting and it's frustrating. I hope this morning you can just lay that down and lay those ideas down at the foot of the cross and know in Christ you are free and alive. Go and play and enjoy the beauty that God has before us. So take some communion if you'd like. Say hi to some folks. Stick around, take off, whatever you want. Thank you so much again, Rachel, for leading us in worship. Todd, thanks for bringing us through Romans chapter 6. And uh, we will see you all throughout the week, Alpha Monday, and uh, other opportunities. God bless you all. Thanks so much.